This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to 3CR. This is Kurt Johnson, and you are listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. I hope you're all safe and sound out there and practicing good mental health and self-care because today we will be delving deep into the human psyche. And where else would we begin with a subject like this than with Freud? In pre-war Vienna, Freud discovered the human unconsciousness driven by appetites barely conscionable to the formal and strict customs of his era. This revelation was disturbing as it desanctified human beings as species much closer to their animal instincts than was thought. Fast forward to today, and there has been a growing movement called eco-psychology, which suggests that humans are again closer to animals by our connection to our ecosystem, which is far deeper than, than was previously thought. So what happens when this connection is upset by climate change or, or destruction? Humans have been shown to respond with fear, despair, and anxiety. To discuss the psychological impacts of climate change, environmental destruction, and how we as a society have responded to the desecration of the ecosphere, we will be talking with three activists and thinkers on the subject. First, Professor Leslie Hughes has written about the enormous costs placed on climate scientists throughout recent history. As a society, we have demanded scientists discover the rational truth so that the human race can progress. Yet when they uncover the realities of climate change, we call them liars and find respite in denial. What is the price exacted on these keepers of this toxic knowledge in a culture of denial and dismissal? We will be talking with Leslie Hughes who is an ecologist and professor of biology at Macquarie University and who published an article in the monthly with the title When Planetary Catastrophe is Your Day Job. We will also be speaking with Mark Allen. Mark proposes a remedy to the psychological maladies that haunt climate activism, burnout, chronic despair, and fear of catastrophe. These can be silent killers, in, our, in, in a movement that up until recently has demanded positivity at all costs. We will be talking with Mark about his quest to stop city sprawl from def- destroying our wild and natural areas. First up, though, we will be talking with a Dr. Glenn Albrecht, who recently reached international fame for coining the term solastalgia to describe the fear and despair that come with the destruction of our home place and natural environment. That'll be up after this community announcement. You know that feeling when... And everything points to... And you just feel so helpless, helpless, helpless. Just because. It's the final but don't worry, there is a way you can. 
Beyond Zero Emissions is one of Australia's most respected climate change think tanks. By supporting us with your donations, you will help keep our two radio shows and podcast channels on air. But we do need your... First show takes us to the bleeding edge of technological research, showing the latest in climate change solutions. Think of it a little bit like... The second show looks at how the community is responding to the climate change threat, locally and globally, because some of the best ideas come from... To donate now, head to bze.org.au or visit us on Facebook or Twitter. The aims of climate action and conservation are often in alignment. The natural world is organically a counterweight to the effects of climate change, one particular imbalance humankind has wrought. More and more we are discovering that we are not separate from the earth, no matter our consciousness or claims of rationality, yet we struggle to define exactly the connection between us and the planet. We instinctively sense its value beyond that of a resource to exploit. In 2004, Professor Glenn Albrecht wrote an essay that contained the word solastalgia, a combination of the Latin word, word solasium, which means comfort, and the Greek root algia, which means pain. It's a term used to describe the condition that humans experience at the destruction of their home place. Beyond this, Glenn has spent a career furnishing psychological meaning to that which we instinctively feel with regards to nature and place and the environment. Glenn, thank you so much for making time. It's my pleasure to talk to you. So in a, in a paper you wrote in Australian Psychiatry, solastalgia is the distress that is produced by environmental change impacting on people while they are directly connected to their home environment. Perhaps a better summary of it arrives later, though, which is environmental change can create distressed environments inhabited by distressed people. Could you provide a bit of context to this term, solastalgia? Sure. It was developed by me um, starting from the year 2003, where I was experiencing the impact of open-cut coal mining in the Upper Hunter of New South Wales. Mm. And the Upper Hunter, as a focus for open pit or open cast coal mining. It's one of the largest mined areas in the Southern Hemisphere and quite possibly the world where hundreds of square kilometres are being literally blown up, uh, scoured, coal dug out and uh, either burnt or exported, uh, uh, leaving behind uh, massive voids or holes in the ground and flat top mesas, uh, mountains of uh, rock waste. And the people who live in that valley uh, we're experiencing a form of sadness and distress connected to precisely that form of mining. It was compounded by things like power station fallout, two big power stations in the Upper Hunter, both uh, run on coal, plus the infrastructure needed to uh, mine and deliver coal. So that massive truck movements, massive railway infrastructure. Uh, the whole coal industry had turned what was once a predominantly rural uh, lifestyle and rural scenery uh, under European colonisation into what one of the mayors in the Upper Hunter called a moonscape. Mm. And so this, this uh, once beautiful part of the Hunter region was being seriously degraded by an industry that had shifted from underground mining with relatively low impacts 
uh, up to about the 1960s and 70s to one that became on the ground or above the ground with massive impacts over a period of decades. And the people who uh, were experiencing this transformation were also so deeply distressed by it that um, I had the opportunity to uh, meet and discuss and then later interview people as part of a research project with my colleagues what it was that was directly distressing these people. And they were quite clear that it was like a, not complicated, it was in your face. Uh, a once rural and beautiful uh, landscape, uh, once described as the, the Tuscany of the South, was being trans, uh, transformed, terraformed uh, by state and multinational uh, mining companies into a desolated moonscape. And I thought that this direct experience of a landscape which is being desolated uh, must have a word in the English language to describe it. And when I did my research initially, I thought that it looked like a kind of nostalgia as defined by Dr. Hoffer in 1688, which was the homesickness that you have when you're away from home and wish to return. He described it as a form of uh, melancholia, a form of grieving about uh, the, the lost home that you wish to return to. And quite clearly there was space to conceptualize a term which said that you're at home, but your home environment is in effect leaving you. And that's a conceptually different experience of loss uh, and melancholia than that of uh, uh, homesickness as defined by Hoffer. So I decided that there was space in the English language for a new concept, one that described this, uh, you know, the, the bumper sticker definition is the homesickness you have when you're still at home. Hmm. And so the word is actually derived from the concepts of solace as, as you uh, indicated, but it's also derived from the concept of desolation, uh, the concept of nostalgia, and algia means pain, grief, distress, desolation. Um, and so uh, an essay published in 2005 in the journal called PAN, which is short for Philosophy, Activism and Nature, I wrote a, a brief essay explaining why it was that I thought we needed a new concept in the English language. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's gradually been accepted as a worthwhile contribution to how we understand human hyphen uh, nature relationships when they go bad, when, when, when things uh, are, are becoming negative for people, as opposed to, you know, the Hunter Valley could have been described in, in, in the past as a place that was uh, generous in its topophilia or love of place, uh, a term that was just um, um, created by the geographer Twan in the 1970s. So solastalgia has its opposite. Uh, if mm. place is giving you distress, it can also give you love. And there wasn't uh, at all in, in our language other than the concept of desolation or the general concept of distress. A, a term, word, or concept that described precisely that experience, and that's why I created it. Fantastic. And and so often the destruction that's wrought by climate change is put in economic terms, but it, as you've described, it's got such a drastic psychological component to it. And 
why has it been easy for us to dismiss our psychological connection to the ecosystem when it's far less abstract and more immediate in terms of our experience than, than the economy is? It's a long story, that one, because it, it begins uh, in Western context with uh, biblical accounts of the relationship between humans and God and the, the role of humans as, you know, perhaps uh, dominating or having dominion over the rest of uh, God's creation. And then it just rolls on from there through various iterations, through various uh, revolutions in thinking. Uh, I even think that the concept of ecology having its origins in oikos, management of the household in the ancient Greek language, contributes to that continued alienation that humans are having between themselves and their home environment. Uh, I've even had to create a fairly new term, which I call muicide, which is the extinction of our emotions. Uh, the idea that we're becoming less emotionally engaged with our own home over time is a story that also needs to be told in a, in, in, in a way that uh, I believe has yet to be taken up precisely by either literary or um, academic, you know, it's come philosophical writers. And, and uh, is, the, is the solution here potentially to play a devil's advocate? Is it to, to double down and just rely on urbanization and, and break our connection with the environment and live in cities and and really reduce, uh, lose that psychological component of, of solastalgia. We, we're trying it, but it seems to be so painful uh, emotionally, psychologically, that uh, I'm not sure if we can actually go through that phase and come out the other end mm. uh, as... Uh, intellectually, conceptually, psychologically, emotionally healthy. It seems that it's hugely damaging to lose that connection. Mm -hmm. And people like uh, Richard Lube have written extensively on what it means for children in particular to have that uh, loss of connection with nature. Um, with respect to adults, I think there's just so much Netflix and watching cats on YouTube that you can have before the reality of missing the real world hits home. And we're seeing a mini version of that under COVID-19 because it's, it's effectively isolated us from the external world in, in many respects. Uh, perhaps in Australia, not quite as bad as it has done in countries like Italy or, or other European countries that have had really serious lock, lockdown and total uh, isolation from other humans and, and their own home, the city that they live in. And we've seen, uh, you know, even fake news proclaiming that the dolphins are coming back into the waters of Venice as yeah. a cause of great celebration. Mm -hmm. People are actually reconnecting with the idea that there's something out there other than uh, uh, human egos and, and smartphones. Fantastic. Um, great answer. Uh, so I'm, I'm also really interested in your take um, between, in, the, in the subtle bifurcation between environmental activism and, and climate action and between conservation, that is, which isn't always the same as, as climate action, although their concerns often align, as I said. But if you clear a wild forest and put up a bunch of wind turbines, that is good for 
climate change, but it's not good for conservation. What is the role, what have you discovered about the role of wildness in human psychology? Very little. <laughs> the, notion <laughs> of wild, the notion of wildness is one that is conceptually very difficult. It has biblical connections to wilderness, a mm. place that's useless, barren, and hostile to human needs. It even has interesting connections to uh, our own indigenous society in Australia, where the notion of wilderness is a land without people, that a, a culture that uh, is intimately connected to land, landscape, and has material and spiritual connections to a place uh, has no concept of wilderness. It, it is a meaningless concept and one that we perhaps should uh, get rid of, like the word environment from our language, the environment as a term defining something which is separate from us and outside us, is in fact a way of misreading the world. It's a category mistake. And I think wilderness is also a category mistake. So I don't have any problem uh, with uh, the, the question. It's just that the concept of wilderness uh, makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, well, that's, um, yeah, that's pretty absolute terms. Um, I'm just to finish up, I'm really interested in, in what you're working on now, Glenn. I'm working on the idea of uh, why it is that we're using the concept of human rights to try and defend uh, aspects of the environment. And so if the world is uh, uh, an organic, symbiotically unified, interconnected thing, the concept of rights has evolved as a way of giving individuals uh, ownership of property in the 16th and 17th centuries through the work of philosophers like John Locke and Jeremy Bentham. And we now see the, the, the ongoing rolling out of human rights and the universal declaration of human rights. We're now wanting to have uh, rights for rivers and rights for mm. just about every other thing on the planet. And I've been writing a critique of rights since the mid-1980s. I wrote right. in a journal called Anarchist Studies, uh, a critique of rights in the environmental context. So I'm having another go at it now using a more updated language and terminology. So I'm doing that. I'm also writing a critique of um, grief as applied to the climate and other environmental issues, because I think it's a devaluation of the concept of grief. Uh, graphically being experienced uh, in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic of people mm. dying in isolation, being buried anonymously in pits, uh, relatives unable to even uh, get onto stage one of, say, Kubler-Ross's stages of grieving, and so it, it struck me that when people apply the concept of grief as bereavement to the climate or to the environment, it's another kind of category mistake and that uh, it's really a devaluation of human grief to apply it to things like the climate because we don't kill the climate. It's still there. It may not be something that we like or as, uh, as likeable as it was 50 years ago, mm. but it's not dead. And so the idea that we should be grieving for something that's not dead is to devalue genuine grief that occurs in humans when they actually do die, when your loved ones are no longer with you, when you can no longer talk to them, hug them, experience life with them. 
that's that's a genuine and important human experience. And I think the grief industry has locked onto the concept of grief in order to uh, to find something to do other than mm. deal with the uh, the COVID nineteen epidemic. So I'm writing a, sh a short essay on that at the moment. So they're the two things that I'm doing. I'm trying to demolish the concept of rights. And I'm also trying to demolish the concept of grief as applied to uh, to, to the non-human. And both of them, I'm sure, are going to be very unpopular things to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you've got your hands full. And I know that, that um, grief is only in its quite its early stages of of being used as a concept within within the climate climate movement um it's only a relatively recent thing um but thank you well, thank I'm, you yeah i'm trying to uh to make it as uh, not only recent but short-lived yeah <laughs> okay thank you so much uh for, for your time glenn i'm going to include um the uh article that you wrote in the um, Australian psychiatry in the show notes and also the, the New York times piece about you that was, was written in 2010. So thank you so much. Well, there's a lot your... more and it, there's a lot more that's also uh, quite recent. Uh, so mm -hmm. if you wanted to highlight anything else, uh, I also, you can uh, access online my um, uh, original paper on solastalgia in uh, philosophy, activism and nature, which uh, started the whole process of discussion about uh, solastalgia as a concept. So uh, I would encourage you to include that paper because it actually is my first published uh, um, oh, wow. paper on solastalgia. Oh, I'll, I'll include that for sure. But um, thank Good you right. so much, Glenn. No worries. We'll catch you later. Bye. Oh. See ya. Help, help. Hello down there. Are you okay? No, I'm I'm stuck. You're stuck? Yeah, I'm stuck in a country that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab your rope? No, there's a rock on me. I, I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups, and indifferent mainstream media coverage. Dear God! What on earth can I do to help? Go now! and donate money to Beyond Zero Emissions. Great, what do I do? Head to bze.org.au forward slash donate. Anything else? Yeah, keep your receipt. Your donation is tax deductible. I'll go right away. I first became aware of the work of Professor Leslie Hughes when I read her June 2018 piece in The Monthly, When Planetary Catastrophe is Your Day Job. In it, she speaks of the emotional labour that climate scientists do. We're the only members of the scientific profession who also hope every day that we're wrong, she says. Professor Hughes is an ecologist and professor of biology at Macquarie University, who researches the impacts of climate change on species and ecosystems. She is also a counsellor with the publicly funded Climate Council of Australia. And we would like to talk with her about the scientific class in Australia. Professor, thank you for speaking with us. Um, it's a pleasure, Kurt. Um, thanks. Uh, so do, do you think that the gravity of our predicament with regards to climate change is beginning to settle into the discourse in this country? Well, look, yes, I do. Um, it, it, it depends on the week and the month, of course, as to how high up it is in people's minds. I mean, obviously, over last summer where we had 
blanket coverage of unprecedented bushfires. Um, the phrase climate change, I think, was on everybody's lips. Um, since then, of course, we've had the COVID pandemic and the whole climate change issue has, has retreated even further back in <coughs> people's consciousness uh, than it was before. I mean, you know, um, while we were all locked down, that we had the third major bleaching event of the Great Barrier Reef in five years, which under normal circumstances would have been top of mind, but um, it barely rated a mention in the media. So I think, you know, where people see climate change um, is very much in a context of what, of other things that are going on in their lives. And right now people are quite understandably focused on their health and, and their jobs. But look, overall, I think, you know, compared to when I first got into the climate change science business, there, there is a hugely different appreciation of the issue uh, than, than back then. Right. So and going back to his, his history and how this debate has developed over time, um, I think that there has, has been a personal cost to each climate scientist through the message that they are trying to deliver, the inability of... Uh, their audience, which is asked to grasp the severity and, and the social pressure of, of being called a liar that, that happens so frequently. Um, today, there is also the reality that anyone paying attention to the news can see, um, which is it, it's happening right now. Um, so how do climate scientists cope with the dissonance between the national discussion and what they know to be true? Well, I think uh, one of the ways we, we cope, as you say, is to focus on, on the need for hope and optimism. I'm, I'm a great believer that hope is as much a strategy as it is an emotion. Um, if we don't remain hopeful and optimistic, well, then we just give up. And of course, if you give up, then all really is lost. So, you know, so, so there's no choice but really to believe that there could be a less bad future than there might otherwise be. So I think, I think that's a driver for all of us. Um, it certainly does get frustrating at times, but look, I think um, one, one of the assumptions people make is that just because the federal government is completely hopeless on climate change policy, and in fact, the Australian government's just been rated by the UN Sustainable Development Report as number 176 out of 177 countries mm. for climate action. And so that, that is what takes up the media and that sort of, you know, underlies the assumption of your question. But, but what is also happening is that there's tremendous work and action in civil society. You know, think of the school kids strike, there's tremendously yeah. increasing interest in the business community, in local government, in state governments. Um, you know, there are many, many businesses and, and governments, sub-national governments that are now putting into place, you know, pretty, pretty strong targets for net zero emissions by certain dates. That is all happening at the same time that the federal government is, is still sitting under a rock. So I think we have to give credit where credit is due and not regard the whole debate, as you would put it, and I don't actually like the word debate, it's not a debate any longer. Yeah. Um, you know, there's lots of people doing lots of things and they're what give me the hope. Yeah, that, and, and that makes sense. So have you, have you seen a corresponding improvement to how 
scientists are treated not just by the federal government but within a certain uh, wing of the media? I'm sure you know what I'm talking um, about. Y- yes, I think so. Look, there's very little, you know, when, you know, if we think back to 10, nearly 10 years ago now when I was first um, with five others appointed to the Federal Climate Commission by the Gillard government, and we went around um, all over the country, urban and regional centres doing town halls, literally in town halls some of the time, or leagues, clubs or theatres, all sorts of things, talking to people about climate change and trying to answer questions. And most of those, even 10 years ago, most of those events, uh, we were treated with a great deal of respect. Um, But then there was just the odd, you know, the odd heckler or the odd um, sceptic that that would get, get heated. Um, and, and, and the attention always goes to the, the, the tiny minority of, of what we would call denialists or sceptics, but they are a small minority. They've always been a small minority. It's, it's unfortunate that several of them are currently in power in the federal government, um, but, but they've never been more than 7 or 8% of the population and they'd be considerably less than that now. I think the bigger challenge is to connect with all of those people for whom climate change is not a debatable issue. They accept the science, but they just don't see the urgency of the situation that the longer we delay real action, the worse the problem will be until potentially it is completely out of our control. So so I see the, the target for communication of all scientists should be those people that are kind of on side but aren't taking it as seriously as they should so that's right. where i think that's where our scientists need to to talk to that group of people um so i'm i'm interested in 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 the national discussion the way that you've cast it that it's very much um a, a fringe element that are climate denialists or the the federal government, which aren't showing any real leadership, even though they they the, 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 at least superficially agree that it's an issue. Um, but I, I I think potentially that doesn't reflect um, the Murdoch press and the role that lobbyists have in mm. um, pushing forward a particular argument and really. Um, giving it way more oxygen than it deserves and 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 that really being a very aggressive campaign and pitted against um scientists that are essentially trying to just Mm. uh explain what is happening and the the truth and don't really have any political agenda and not armed by Mm. um any pr necessarily by any sort of pr um uh, cynical take on how to represent their argument, just want to present facts. Is is that a little bit of an uneven um, contest there? Look, look there's, there's no question that the Murdoch press is extremely unhelpful in this. <laughs> I guess, you know, people like me that have been in this space for so long, we're so used to the Murdoch press um, saying what they say and doing what they do that we just don't sort of pay much attention to it, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, 
if you spend all of your time trying to counter denialist sceptical arguments, yeah. well, then you don't spend any time doing what's really important, which is moving forward, showing positive solutions, showing things that have co-benefits, giving people hope for the future, um, giving them a way forward. If we just focus continually on countering stupidity, then we've got no time or energy left to do what really needs to be done. So, so I think most people in the science communication space now have realised that positive messages resonate much more than negative messages. It doesn't yeah. actually matter to the atmosphere what people think. It matters what they do. So if you can get people to do the right thing, even if it's for reasons other than how you or I might do it, um, that's the main thing. So I think we've got to be very, very pragmatic about mm -hmm. this, based, of course, on scientific evidence, but not let ourselves waste time shouting at the TV and railing against the, you know, editorials in the Australian. We've got better and more important things to do, that, do than that. And yeah. I often use the example that, a few years ago, I read in the paper, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I can still make the point, that Corey Bernardi, you know, the conservative politician, had just put solar panels on his house. And it, yeah. it made me reflect that, okay, if, if Corey Bernardi's got the same number of solar panels on his house than I have, that I have on mine, then our impact on the atmosphere is the same, regardless of of what motivated us to do that. So that's what I mean. Uh, it matters what we do, not so much what we think. Thinking the right thing helps, but I think what we've got to focus on is being very practical, very pragmatic, and offer people a way forward, making it easy for them to do the right thing. Right. Um, and uh, I'm... Expanding on that, um, the, the difference between what people think and what they do, I'm interested in um, the price that seems to be happening now globally um, when a certain section of the population dismiss and deny science. Um, in, in a previous time when it was politically expedient to do so, not just in terms of climate change and catastrophe, but dismissing science at the same it seems to have happened at the same moment that a bunch of conspiracy theories bloomed um, where we began to entertain fake news and alternative facts uh, it, it almost seems like once from climate change once we began to deny or once certain people began to deny the science um it seems like when they cut that tether to fact, they start drifting helplessly out to space and it's really difficult to, to, to bring them in. I'm interested in denial of science and the implications that that has for a society, which I think you're beginning to sort of see in anti-vaxxer movements and in, um, in, in uh, climate change in the longer term. Do you think it's um, existentially dangerous in the longer term? Oh, look, I think there's always been people that have had difficulty um, understanding science. And, and if, if, you know, I, I don't find the, um, the communication around science denial or science debate 
very helpful at all. Mm. And I do think the media's focus on that, it doesn't help at all, in fact. Um, you know, when people say to me, I don't believe in climate science, I say it's not a question of belief, it's not religion, it's not faith. I come back to them and say, well, what is it that you don't understand? And that's yeah. the role that, that, that we, we have to keep focusing on is, is explaining um, and providing alternatives. Um, I really don't think that continually, and the media just keeps loving to, to beat up a false debate, keeping on talking about denialism and keeping on talking about whether it's in terms of vaccinations or climate change is very helpful. I mean, it just reinforces that there's doubt, even if that's not the intention. So as I said before, we, we actually need to focus very positively on solutions, whether they're solutions to the COVID pandemic or solutions to climate change. That's what we should be talking about. You know, this continual re-dredging up of a fake yeah. debate isn't actually very helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And and, and bearing that in mind, um, you also wrote another article in the monthly this year about the development of um, synthetic replacements for food. And I, I had a Rebel Whopper uh, a few months back and found it a delicious alternative to the... To the <laughs> that's good. <laughs> So the conformist whopper. Um, my concern is the volume of demand in that we've got um, huge thirsty almond plantations using scarce yep. water in the Murray-Darling yep. Basin to satisfy the new demand for almond milk. What yep. technology is being developed beyond plant alternatives on the leading edge of um, food research and development? That you yeah, spoke well, it's a good that. question. So, so the article that you mentioned, and, and thank you for reading it, um, yes, it does talk a bit about plant-based meats and, and that sort of thing because people know about that. But, but what the article was really about is the developing fermentation technology where genetically modified yeast and, and other organisms, but mostly yeast, is used to produce protein that is identical to animal protein, but you actually don't need a cow or a sheep or a chicken to produce it. So it's... Um, we're, we're rapidly heading, the, the, at least the technology is rapidly heading towards a place where we can produce protein and we can all already produce the proteins that are in milk and many of the proteins that are in meat in basically a big steel fermentation vat with, vat with yeast. Now, when this technology takes off and, you know, the article I wrote was, was a, about you know, the, the, the growing evidence that it, it may well really take off over the next five to 10 years, that presents extraordinary opportunities and extraordinary changes for food production. It means, for example, we do not have to cover the globe in sheep and cow paddocks. We could produce meat essentially um, in an urban centre you know, maybe even in our own kitchen in the future. Um, we won't have um, all of that methane um, from the, that livestock going into the atmosphere, which is very potent greenhouse gas. We won't have the water use and the fertiliser use um, that's used to, to keep those animals alive and feed them. Now, of course, 
our, you know, in Australia in particular, you know, we, we still rely a lot on, on agricultural production to uh, provide incomes for, for rural and regional communities in particular. So, you know, these sorts of emerging technologies represent uh, potential existential threats, um, to use that phrase again, um, for those communities, because we won't we, we will be able to separate the geography of food production from the farm in the future. So I just think it's a really, really interesting um, emerging technology that's going to have, in my view, having read a lot about it now, even greater impacts on how we produce our food um, than making burgers out of pea protein, for example. Um, but, I, but I think it's, it's a watch this space. I don't think many people, including many in the agricultural industry, are particularly aware of it. And they're certainly not planning for the threat. And one of the things I discuss in that article is the fact that the Australian dairy industry, which is in, in trouble anyhow for all sorts of reasons, has a new dairy plan. Um, but neither does climate change really figure in that plan and certainly um, emerging technologies that may well replace milk production from cows in a few years' time get much of a mention. So I do think there needs to be a far greater awareness of how technology is going to very swiftly um, change what we buy in the supermarket and the way we eat. Uh, well, we'll but coming back to your point... If you come, we come back to your point about the almond milk, it is absolutely the case that um, all food production has some sort of environmental cost. We, we know that. I mean, the good thing about almond trees is that they're at least sequestering carbon in the wood mm. that they're growing. They yep. do have a, a huge um, amount of water that they need, um, but frankly, it's not nearly as much as, as livestock does. So one of the um, very good and extensive reviews that I quote in that article um, is one published in Science a couple of years ago that basically concludes after extensive analysis that um, there is nothing better you can do for the planet as an individual um, than reducing your meat and dairy consumption and that no production of any vegetable or fruit or, or grain is as bad for the environment on average as the production of meat and dairy. Wow. Well, yeah, well, we're definitely going to um, link that article and the, and the first article that we spoke about, which is um, the, uh, when planetary catastrophe is your day job in the, in the show notes. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Hughes, for, for joining us. Uh, my pleasure, Kurt. It was great yeah. to talk to you. And um, I think there's definitely enough for us to do a whole separate show on, on, on food. Yeah, great. Oh, thank you. Mark Allen has established himself as an advocate of holistic activism, which promises to tackle some of the pitfalls traditionally associated with climate activism, which includes fragmentations, clashing of ideas and burnout. Mark Allen is also a staunch opponent of our property development addicted economy. Mark, th thank you so much for taking the time out. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on, on 3CR and, and on your show. Yeah, it's your, your old stomping ground, right? Yeah, yeah. I've uh, spent a few, um, a few times at 3CR over the years. I used to co-host the City Limits show, uh, which, was, which was fun, and I learned a lot from that too. Awesome. Um, so last year at the, at the High Point 
uh, of the climate strike. We spoke with uh, Mark Hudson, who's a, a Mercunian, um, and he's a, a, also an activist that simply didn't believe in protests' ability to achieve anything. They're a burst of activity that makes the participants feel like they're making a difference, but soon people tune out or burn out. And that really burnt my, uh, burst my bubble. Uh, but more or less, he has been proven right, I feel. Mark, how would holistic activism position itself as a solution to this problem? Right, well, this is an interesting question because um, protest can can um, have benefits and history has shown that, that protest has led to change. Um, holistic activism doesn't want to be too prescriptive um, around saying whether or not protest is good or bad. Um, mm -hmm. it, it almost certainly has its place. Um, what holistic activism is more interested in is ensuring that uh, in those times when we're not protesting, um, we need to better connect and grow the movement and communicate with people in a look for ways of communicating with people um, that is constructive, even if they don't necessarily uh, share our same world view. So I think there is a place for protest. There is a place for taking to the streets. But we also have to uh, bear in mind that there is also a place for communication and reaching out to people um, and trying to find common ground and areas of intersection to build up the trust between people from different perspectives and different opinions so that we can start to create a movement that uh, isn't otherwise entrenched in conflict and division. Yeah, I, I, I was also, um, I, I read through the holistic activism booklet that, that you sent me and I was really, really impressed with the, um, the aspects of mindfulness and meditation. Could you just explain how they, they feature in, in holistic activism? Yeah, so holistic activism, the first step of holistic activism is about really being rooted in a sense of peace um, and connectivity. Um, it doesn't have to be a religious feeling. Uh, it, you can be an atheist and still feel this. Uh, someone like Chris Packham, who I'm a great fan of, he's a, he's a staunch atheist, but he has such a connection and love for nature. He can spend hours in his garden just being with nature. And, and, it's, and it's that that draws his strength, I think. Mm. Uh, so for me, uh, the, the mindfulness and the meditation it, it, it's the starting point of that uh, acceptance and joy, finding joy and beauty and complexity and not being threatened by it. Because if we mm. can find a place of connection and beauty that's outside of language, that's our kind of our safe place. Our, our, our oneness with nature is our safe place. Then when we enter into the world of language and we go back into the world of mind and we have to communicate with people and deal with all kinds of difficult mm. conflicting situations, we're going to come from a place that's much more compassionate and we're going to come from a place where we're much more likely to be able to change our perspective and look for the common ground with other people because our ideology is not built on on language, it's, it's built on something that's outside of language that can never be broken. So it really is about being meditation and mindfulness. It's not, it's not a kind of, we should do this instead of critical thinking. It's actually a pathway 
into critical thinking because it, is, it means that we're less likely to get drawn into ideological thinking. And by being less likely to get drawn into ideological thinking, we're more likely to open our minds and look for ways of connecting to other people, building the wider movement. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's, that's bang on, I think. I'd, I'd like to go back to what you were talking about a, a little bit earlier, um, which is um, the, the, the fragmentation that, that you see inherent in, in activism um, and trying to form a consensus within a movement that usually breaks into pieces. Um, and I, I see this happening right now in the climate movement where you see tension between the, the decolonizers and the uh, conservationists and the socialists and the sustainability, um, those, those that are after sustainability. And all, all of those are really pushing in different directions when it comes to various issues. Um, is, there, is there an alternative um, and, uh, to try and building consensus across all these disparate movements? I think there is, but I think it has to have a different mindset. I think there has to be a willingness, first of all, to accept that we're not going to save the planet with one set of opinions alone and to accept mm. that and to come into any conversation with that acknowledgement. The planet doesn't care what your opinion is or my opinion is. The planet cares about what actions we, we take. Mm. So coming into a conversation and into discussion and discourse with that mindset into a mindset of not wanting to win or come out on top, but to actually do the difficult work, which is to be comfortable with the fact that we may not share opinions with someone, but we can find the common ground. And if we look for the common ground and we work together on that common ground, then we're going to build the trust that's needed in order to have potentially those more difficult conversations down the track. But if, if you come into an interaction with, a, with someone straight away in, a, in an atmosphere of conflict, you're not gonna build any kind of commonality with that person, even though you might have a lot of commonality. And it's, it's almost an indulgence. It's, um, it, it, it's just crazy. Why not build, look for the, the areas of common ground, accept your differences in opinion, and then over time, because if, if you start from a place of conflict, um, you're, you're only going to entrench conflict, you know, cognitive dissonance is such, I mean, scientists have actually measured this and proved this, that if, if you're, if you're challenging someone and the whole point of the conversation is to, is to win and challenge someone, it doesn't matter how rational or how right your argument is, the other person is probably more likely to dig deeper into their perspective. So it just, it just entrenches division. We don't have time for any of that anymore. Uh, we literally don't. It is an indulgence to do that. Now, obviously, sometimes there's going to be, you're going to try and connect with someone and, and it's not going to work. Now, if you go into an interaction with someone with the determination to try and find the common ground and work with them, and that person continues, continues to make life difficult for you in that conversation and continues to oppose you, then that's your cue not to work with that person. That's your cue to walk away. And uh, a lot of burnout that happens in, in, uh, in um, activism is because sometimes we don't know when to walk away from someone. And also a lot of, a lot of burnout happens when we focus on areas of conflict 
rather than looking for the common ground. So by actually looking for the common ground, we will A, determine whether or not we can work with this person and save ourselves a lot of time by walking away. And B, um, we can, um, if that person is someone who is amicable to looking for common ground with us, we can actually start to create a relationship that's going to create some decent constructive outcomes. Yeah, and I, I, I think taking it back to your um, answer to uh, mindfulness and meditation is that so often conflict arises as, as, a, as a function of ego um, and to be right matters more than what you're actually trying to achieve. And I think that perhaps mindfulness and meditation are a way through that ego and, and to understand commonalities there. Um, I, I, exactly. I'm also, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. I'm also Sorry. really interested in, no, no, I, I, in what holistic activism looks like in practice and uh, particularly with your um, con confronting real estate development as, as such a problem and the principles you have applied to, to fight it. Yeah. Well, Town Planning Rebellion is a group that is built around holistic activism principles. So we are, you know, in the discussions that we have, we are always looking for the common ground, the areas of intersection. And, uh, and that's very, very important. But Town Planning Rebellion is also an organization that is first and foremost saying that we need systemic change. It's based around the fact that we need to transition to some form of steady state economy, a degrowth based society. Um, it acknowledges the fact that most of the um, activism around development and planning is reactive. Uh, it's trying to basically do damage control. And, and when I worked as a planner, planning is mostly damage control. It's about trying to minimize the negative impacts of town planning right. because we live in a growthist uh, neoliberal society that focuses heavily upon development and construction in order to keep this show on the road. And as a result of that, and as a result of the deregulation and the power that's come with the development lobby, um, it is um, only putting out spot fires in terms of dealing with um, planning issues, in, in, especially in, in Melbourne. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're, we're not, again, we're, we're not saying that people shouldn't go out and campaign to prevent, you know, the grasslands of Melbourne from being developed, or they shouldn't go out and campaign to prevent a bad development happening in their neighborhood. These are all perfectly good and decent things to do. But what Town Planning Rebellion recognizes is that first and foremost, we've got to change the system that causes these constant battles to be needed. We've got to, ch we've got to change the underlying system. So um, we actually, we're very open. We say, look, uh, it, this organization is saying that we need systemic change. We need to completely create a degrowth-based society and develop town planning principles out of that rather than trying to make the best of the current system we're in now, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And, and do you think that um, COVID represents an opportunity to rethink our addiction to property in this country? 
Oh, COVID has been an incredibly valuable opportunity to rethink. Um, it's been a great opportunity for us to sort of reflect and understand. Well, it, it's, it's also a wake-up call, or maybe not a wake-up call, but it, it's humbling in the fact that <laughs> society can change so quickly. And it's yeah. uh, a little bit of a hint of maybe what's coming in the future with, with climate change and that maybe we're not quite as in control as we thought we were, you know? Uh, who would have thought a year ago that you wouldn't be able to cross the border between Victoria <laughs> and New South Wales? Totally. Um, things can change, happen. Things can happen very quickly. Um, we're not as in control as humans as we thought we were, maybe. So it's, it's a humbling experience. And it's also um, been an, a great opportunity for us to reconsider and use this opportunity to think about how we can create a society that can prevent or at least reduce the impact of a much more serious crisis that's already starting to unravel, which is the biodiversity and climate emergency. The tragedy, of course, the deep tragedy, of course, is the powers that be, the government and the people that back them, are actually using this as an opportunity, this, this, this pandemic, to actually dig deeper into their mm. growthist neoliberal mindsets, which is why you know, fossil fuel uh, lobby is being given uh, the opportunity to lead the COVID-led recovery and why um, so-called green tape is being cut yep. in the development and construction areas. So uh, we've, we've got this great opportunity and it's being squandered by the powers that be. And that's, that's extraordinarily heartbreaking. Um, and this is why acceptance is always a good thing. Cause yeah. just, you've got to keep going in this game, but it's, it's, it's really hard when you realize that we've had this opportunity and it's been being blown as we speak. Yeah. Well, let's hope things, things change for the better. And I'm, I'm going to add, um, the link for your, uh, holistic activism booklet, because I think it's really important for everybody to, um, adopt a lot of the mindsets that you lay out in it. Um, but thank you so much for your, for your time, Mark, and, and best of luck with the fight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, and I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. I'm Kurt Johnson. I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Glenn Albrecht, Professor Leslie Hughes and Mark Allen, Salu and Salu Babet. I would also like to invite anyone to send us your thoughts on the show to radioteam at bze.org.au. Finally, we talked a lot in this episode about mental health, and if you are suffering from any mental health issues in these times of great stress, there are people that can help. A great place to start is Beyond Blue. Their website is www.beyondblue.org.au. Please take care of yourselves out there. I'm Kurt Johnson.